Welcome, all you good movie buddies, to the Popcorn Diets 2019 Oscar Primer. As always, I am your very best good movie buddy, Rick Williamson, and with us as usual is our other good movie buddy, the Canadian Machine, Mr. David Melhorn. Now, for those of you who have not listened to one of our Oscar Primer episodes before, this is a series, sort of a mini-series, if you will, designed to bring a bit more of an analytical look at what one may call... The classy pictures, the prestige movies, the, the 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 big contenders, the front runners that are considered to be big players in the upcoming, well, I mean, current award season, ultimately leading up to the 91st Annual Academy Awards on February 24th, 2019. Now, we've done quite a few of these already. I highly encourage you to go and look back, and if you haven't seen any of the films that we've done Oscar primers on, give it a listen, give it a look. Maybe you'll find yourself interested in seeing it, but for this particular episode, we are focusing on one that has, much like Roma, uh, as previously discussed, has a lot more what's the word I'm looking for? Accessibility, David, um, than, you know, some of the other uh, prestige pictures in the past. This episode, we are focusing all on The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is on Netflix right now. It's been on Netflix for, uh, for a couple of months at least. And The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is an anthology film, a Western anthology film, which is interesting because uh, you don't usually get anthology films kind of just in general. You know, it's very rare. Um, it was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen brothers, um, who are responsible for so many different types of movies uh, that have been... You know, various awards contenders previously, they are famously uh, won their Oscars for No Country for Old Men. They uh, directed Fargo. They made The Big Lebowski, Raising Arizona, Burn After Reading, uh, a lot of Coen Brothers films out there. And they are known sort of for their, their balance of really dark material, but also really kind of you know, oddly funny material as well. Um, and so it was written, directed by the Coen brothers and it stars a bunch of, bunch of different people. I mean, it's an anthology film, so it has six different segments. And amongst those segments, you get characters and actors like Tim Blake Nelson, James Franco, Stephen Root, Liam Neeson. We got Tom Waits comes in there. Uh, Zoe Kazan, Bill Heck, which is a great name. Uh, Tyne Daly and Brendan Gleeson, amongst others. Saul Rubinak. There's quite a few people in this movie. Um, and yeah, to kind of go through the plot for this one, David, is... I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to approach it. Do we go through the plot of each one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes it a little bit difficult because you've got six different plots. Sure. Uh, not all the same length either. Not all equal length. No, not at all. And I think the important thing to know, too, is that they have nothing to do with each other. It's not like there's a recurring theme or that kind of thing, other than the sense that these are all set in the overall Western yeah. backdrop. Uh, they really have nothing to do with each other. Um, I think I think the way I would start is obviously with the title one, sure. which is our first one, which is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Ballad of Buster Scruggs um, basically follows. I don't know if you'd call him. He's a. I don't know if he's a hired gun. He's not a hired a, gun, but he's, he's a, a singing cowboy singing gunslinger. Gunslinger. There you go. Yeah. Um, but it, it basically covers the idea of. And he says it at the end, you can't stay on top forever. 
Very true. And so you, it's, yeah, I would say it's probably their most lighthearted one, even though the main character <laughs> dies yes. in it. Yes. Um, but it's probably the lightest <laughs> of the ones that you get. Um, it was one of my favorites. It's very good. It has, it has, a, uh, th- there's a visual joke in it where he kicks the table and the guy shoots himself in the head repeatedly. Yeah. Like that is a, just an A plus visual gag. Yep. That is really, really good. The costuming's amazing. That he comes in with the big old 10 gallon hat looking like, uh, uh, <laughs> looking like Marty McFly in Back to the Future Part Three before he travels to the Old West, which was, you know, uh, itself a parody of like Roy Rogers and all those other guys who were just all dressed in white and whatever. Uh, the next one is near Algodonez or Algodonez. And that one's about this, this criminal, James Franco, who ultimately just keeps getting in worse and worse luck, uh, ultimately finds himself hanging, but then at the very end kind of sees a pretty girl and just is, I mean, it's a tiny little comment, but he's, oh, that's a pretty girl. And I think that one is mostly about, you know, the ability to see the the lightness in even the, the like worst possible times. Sure, and 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 let's let's establish too. He starts out by riding a, robbing a bank, so he kind of puts himself in the situation that. Oh, one hundred percent. But it's 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 almost comical. His bad luck from there on, obviously, like you rob a bank, you go outside and crazy bank teller <laughs> with pots and pans and all that kind of stuff chases you down, knocks yep. him out. And then um, he gets on. He's he's hanging from a rope. He's about to be hung, but the but the the all of the the posse gets shot and killed. They all get taken out with arrows. Then he winds up getting saved by another cowboy. But that cowboy winds up being a rustler. Um, this one I think is the shortest one of all of them. I think this one is not very long. Not very long at all. It's like ten minutes. Yeah. Um, then we go to meal ticket, which I found to be the darkest of all of them. Um, oh God, yes. From the standpoint of, there wasn't like most of these have like some dark, twisted humor. From the sense of like, it's not just heavy the whole time. And sure. this one again, you could have some dark, twisted humor in here, but it it doesn't have many ups amongst the uh, <laughs> the the process. But it's basically no. following um, an aging. I think they call him like an impresario, um, basically someone who. Uh, he's like a like a ward. He's like somebody who's gosh, I don't even know how to describe it. But anyways, his artist is Harrison. He's a young man with no arms or no legs, and they basically go town to town in a wagon there it is. and put on performances. And in pers- an an M Presario is a person who organizes and often finances concert plays operas. He's he's an agent. It sounds like he's basically a- like an old western version of an agent. I yeah. guess. Uh, but anyways, they go place to place, but their crowds get. Smaller and smaller because they go to more and more remote places. Mm-hmm. Um, f- finally, they kind of hit rock bottom with a show that they get nothing. I think there was one person at it, and that yeah. person gave no nothing. money. Um, and this impresario uh, then goes and watches a dude <laughs> with a chicken who's doing math and buys the chicken from the person putting on the show. And basically, we're led to believe that uh, he kills <laughs> he the... kills the young young artist Harrison by throwing him off a bridge that he throws a rock in to make sure it's he's... not it's <sighs> deep enough. It's dark as shit. It's 
it is the it is the full and that's we'll get into the you know the director flourishes in a little bit but it is very Cohen dark oh very much um yeah uh the next one is my favorite and that's all gold canyon and that's where you got tom waits coming in looking like old ass nick nolte and he's basically the the old prospector uh and it's all of i think i like this one the most because it really just kind of detailed the what people did to prospect like yeah. it sh- I, I really had never seen gold prospecting done like this before in the film and it shows the process of how he's panning for gold and he's finding a oh he finds a speck here and a speck there and then he goes a little bit further up the river finds a speck here a speck there and then when he finds enough specks in the river then he starts digging in a pattern and looking for that vein looking for the gold vein right um finds the gold vein and he's putting in all this work right and then finally he's digging it out he finds a big old nugget and then he gets shot in the back by some young hoodlum. Um, but unlike unlike Meal Ticket, this one is a, a happy ending in that he's not, he's not killed. He actually wakes up, wrestles away the hoodlum's gun, kills the hoodlum, and winds up getting all his gold and taking his donkey and heading on his merry way. Um, and I think a big part of that, I mean, it ties into, you know, taking what you need or what you've worked for. Like there's a moment in the film where he climbs up and takes to to get an egg from an owl's nest, and he's starting to take all of them. But then he the owl, he catches the owl staring at him, and he's like, "All right, I'll put him back. Well, I'll only take one. I need one." And I think it's kind of like a karmic retribution thing, where sure. it's you know, oh, you took an egg, you got a little damaged, but you know, you you were nice enough to put it back, so you get to keep what you get to keep. So I really like that one. That yeah. was probably my favorite yeah. one. Yeah, all the, all all Gold Canyon is 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 all about. Tom Waits. Yeah, it is. And he is by far, and this is skipping ahead to performances, and I'll I won't go too into it, but he's 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 the standout person amongst all the performances For sure. of this. For sure. Uh, but the fifth one is the gal who got rattled. The longest one. Uh, and this is by far the longest one, I yeah. feel. Or maybe it just felt like it was the longest one. No, uh, it is. <laughs> this one feels like its own short film. It's like 30 minutes long. Yeah, it's it's pretty long. But basically follows um, two siblings. Uh, Alice is the one, and her brother Gilbert. Basically, the it's the Oregon <laughs> Trail is yeah. is is the essence of what this is, and they're gonna go out to Oregon. Um, Gilbert supposedly has arranged for Alice to marry a businessman. Makes it seem like basically he's marrying off his sister from a business standpoint. Um, Gilbert dies of cholera. Um, the two people running the wagon lead or the wagon train leaders, um, basically the people that would be running these people that want to go out to Oregon. Mm-hmm. That's their job. They go back and forth. Um, Billy Knapp and Mr. Arthur help help her bury her brother. She decides to stay on and goes out to Oregon still. Um, ends up that there was a man that was hired to help Gilbert and he was owed money. So Billy through takes on the debt takes on the debt and proposes to Alice. Um, tells Mr. Arthur this is his last trip. Um, they kind of grow a bond, Billy and Alice. Um, then <laughs> this, there's this there's freaking movie. Th- there's the freaking President Pierce, which is the small dog the that they dog. they brought with um, that is obnoxious and barks all the time. Uh-huh. And <laughs> Billy is basically in charge of killing it, but fails to one. <laughs> Misses the dog and the dog goes running off um, before being reunited with Alice, which leads them to basically running into 
a uh, group, a raiding party of Comanche. Yep. And Mr. Arthur fights off multiple waves of com- advancing Comanches, which was when this this one picked up. Yeah. It was pretty slow moving until this. Yeah. And But before they got <laughs> invaded, he gave her a gun and said, if I die, shoot yourself because it's going to be much better than getting captured by the Comanche. Right. And then he gets clocked. He gets clocked and kind of plays dead. Yeah. Gets up, kills the Comanche, and then Goes finds back. the girl dead. <laughs> Again, it's one of those that this was this was not my favorite. I think it's probably number three or four for me of uh-huh. these six. But it was one of those where it's like slow, 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 but in like Cohen Brothers fashion. Yeah. There's a really good payoff. And it's a dark payoff, but it's like Kind of a enjoyable payoff it's, for whatever it's reason. Dark, maybe I'm twisted. It's darkly. It's it's ridiculous. You know. It's it's it it falls into that deep dark humor of the Coen Brothers. It's the same thing as to me. It rings very true of the way Brad Pitt's character was killed in Burn After Reading. Sure. You know where it's just like it's gruesome and it's terrible and it's horrible because you somewhat like these characters. But the, the 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 swift nature of it is just so ridiculous. Yeah. Um. And yeah, that one was again. That was just all about. I mean, I don't even know what that one is about. Essentially, um. It's it's a lot of the Cohen Cohen brothers general themes are losing things and then gaining things and then losing them again. Like, yeah. and that feels like to a T what this is, you know, when you have, uh, you know, when you have Alice and she's going off and then she loses something, but then she gains something, but then she's, she- she's kind of a doomed character from the beginning, kind of like the James Franco, uh, one. Sure. In the sense that you get the feeling from the beginning that she's not, super thrilled about going out to Oregon that right. this isn't really her decision and she's kind of dominated by her brother. Um, then she kind of lucks into the fact that, and this sounds terrible, but you didn't really feel like she was really super sad that her brother died. No, he kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> so she gets out of that, but then she's she finds a- out she's got debt, so she's got that to deal with. Right. And then here comes Billy, who steps in and says, like, "Marry her, take nice her to nice guy. Maybe I have a future. They're going to settle down in Oregon, right?" And then, and then she dies. She, she dies. kills herself. <laughs> like it is the ultimate have and have not. Um, and then the last one, the the last film is the Mortal Remains, and the Mortal Remains is essentially a a one room show where there are five people in a wagon, and ultimately they're discussing discussing. The nature of humanity and sin and lust and things like that. And and the, the funny thing is, is that it ultimately it comes down to the fact that the two of the men that are with them turn out to be bounty hunters. They're reapers. And on the top of the carriage that is traveling, the, uh, that is taking them to where they need to go, there's a body there. And there's all of this allusion to the idea that... Um, this is all, uh, gosh, what's the word? A- an analogy where these three bo- three people are being ferried to the afterlife, um, and these two are reapers who do the ferrying to the afterlife. It's very moody. It's very again. It goes into the very dark nature of everything, but it's also got that Coen Brothers, you know, pat 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 dialogue and whatnot. And it's, I would say, it is not nearly as dark as Meal Ticket, but it is more somber. You know, it's more. Uh, oh gosh, what's the word? I don't want to. Maybe creepy. It it had a great payoff though, because 
the thing is, is I feel like as you watch that one and you get the plot of it, you don't really understand where this is all going. Sure. Um, it just really seems like passengers on a on a wagon. On a stagecoach, yeah. Talking and getting the background on all of them. Um, you really don't get the payoff of like kind of the if this was a joke, like the punchline until you're like in the last couple minutes of the film when they say we're bounty hunters. Right. They get out of the town, they haul the body out. Right. And everyone's <laughs> kind of like, oh shit. Well, and they even talk through like how they typically do it, uh-huh. how they get their people, the their targets talking mm-hmm. and almost befriend them. Basically like what's been happening this whole time. <laughs> right, right. In there. And then it's like, oh, we're here. And they go into the hotel and like the three people are like, I don't know that I want to stay here anymore. I don't even know I want to walk through those doors. <laughs> Yeah, man. I mean, they're and they're all really good, really great performances all around. And and again, going back to like the directors and the performances and everything, going back to the Coen brothers, they are just the masters of that that give and that take. I mean, you look, I mean, you look at all of their films. You look at even the ones that are tinged to be funny, like Raising Arizona. Or the ones that are tinged to be darker, like No Country for Old Men. I mean, you look at No Country for Old Men and you look at Josh Brolin's character. Now he has and has not and has and has not. And and everyone remembers Anton Chigurh from that. But all of the other characters are are very similar in that they are people striving to do their best. Or they are decent people caught you know, in an indecent world. You know, much yeah. like uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character. Or, or Francis McDormand's character in Fargo. So you can kind of see how the character types and tropes follow along with the Coen brothers and what they do. But it is, I mean, these are six short films. It's an anthology, so there are six short stories that are the most Coen-y thing I think the Coens have ever done. <laughs> right? I mean, how do you, I mean, and do you, obviously we're fans of the Coen brothers here, but, but do you buy into, you know, their... Uh, their their balance of the dark and the ridiculous. Do you like their humor more? Do you like their more dramatic movies more? I you know I the thing that I liked about it was it was something that you always get something unique from the Coens. It's not yeah. like everything else that you're seeing. Um, and I think it works the way that they do it. And I think um, all of these had some kind of payoff or something that kind of put a bow on them. I sure. think I think the one that was the least of that would have been the James Franco one than your Algodones. Only because you didn't really, like there was kind of the ending was just like you said, he saw the pretty girl and said, oh, there's a pretty girl. Pretty girl, yeah. That kind of thing. But all the other ones, you kind of, it put together the pieces as you went through. Buster Scruggs was really short too. That was Sure. The first two are super short. Yeah. Um, But then you get like Meal Ticket, which... You know, you can kind of see a start to end. Mm-hmm. You have the, all the Gold Canyon. So I think it works. The thing that I found unique was the way that each of them really had their own different style to each of them. All, obviously, all of them had the backdrop of the, the West. West, but you had the first one, the Buster Scruggs, which was like super bright and almost like musical. Yeah. It's almost them like, tickling that musical funny bone they have again. They did that in Hail Caesar. Yeah. And then you get kind of a progression to James Franco, which is, again, traditional-looking Western Mm -hmm, of it. mm -hmm. Um, But then you go Meal Ticket, which is just, I think it's almost entirely 
in the dark. Yep. Even snow dark because like, it's every night in the darkness. Right. Just stays dark the whole, and then you switch to all Gold Canyon, which is super bright, almost all in the day. Yeah, it's all bright. It's a beautiful, uh, gorgeous backdrop. Yeah. just gorgeous. Like that's the one that sticks out from a visual standpoint, uh-huh. just because they do such a good job with the scenery of where they're at. Um, the gal who got rattled seems pretty dark to me again. Sure, um, I know they were in the day and in and that, but it overall it kind of feels like a darker uh, one. And then Mortal Remains is like almost all shot inside of a stagecoach at night. So you have very different settings. And so I thought it was interesting how they kind of played with that. And and it definitely lended to what you think of when you think of the Coen brothers. That's a really good point. I mean, you have the the gal who got rattled, which is clear is the most expansive, I would say, of the stories. Probably the largest cast, including extras. It's a whole Oregon Trail train. There's big action sequence and stuff like that. But and then it transitions to such a small, isolated five people in a stagecoach type of setting. That's a really good point. Um and you know the thing about the anthology is that it doesn't I, unlike, unlike, you know, a full movie, it doesn't really let anybody get a ton of momentum. You know, all the performances are great. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that, you know, there's nobody who is bad. Um, but, like, you talk about Franco's, you know, um, section. Not, I mean, f- they're all fine, but there's nothing special. Um, same thing with Meal Ticket. Like, Neeson is great and, and Harry Melling is great, but they don't get a lot going on. So, to me... Like, the standouts to me were in the longer sec. Obviously, Tim Blake Nelson's great as a singing cow, as Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Tom Waits, as you said before, is pretty phenomenal, mm-hmm. doing his essentially one-man show. Zoe Kazan is really great. She's been in a couple of things that I just I just really like her in. And Bill Hack is really likable, too. Um, and then the same thing with The Mortal Remains at the end. You know, that's, that's an ensemble. Everybody is pretty much on the same level. But Tyne Daly... Yeah, kind of. She's kind of got the the angrier part, the showier part, if you will. You got Saul Rubinick doing a French Frenchman's accent, which yeah, is yeah. a lot of fun. But I wouldn't necessarily say like there's there's any terrible performances, but there are certainly ones that, you know, I mean, they're not going to fit into the giant lexicon of of Coen Brothers performances. No, you know, no. As far as relevance though of this, I think you look at the main relevance to me, at least as I step back. Obviously, this sure. isn't a real deep thing. It's not taking on any tough it's it's the coen brothers yeah it's Um, set in the west but i think the things that i take away from this is one the thing i love about the coen brothers is they continue to um do things in different ways than the tradition of of film sure um you always get something whether you connect with it or not you always get something that's different and to me I wouldn't call it a f- breath of fresh air because it's usually dark. Yeah. Um, but it is something that's usually... It's a breath of air. Uh, <laughs> something that makes it feel differently. <laughs> and I think the same goes true with this in that I think you saw two films that critically were really loved this year in Ballad of Buster Scruggs mm-hmm. as well as Roma that were released on Netflix. And so I think that that alone plays into a little bit of the significance. You're getting these big-time directors think of the directors that we have that just did films and right. are doing films we've got a scorsese film coming up we had the coen brothers do it we had alfonso um so you're seeing these big big directors go to this different avenue of content to create so i don't know that you could pull off ballad of buster scruggs in your traditional theater i mean i know it was in there right but i don't think it would be really well received because it's like 
they're so short. It's not like it's okay. Intermission time. Let's go to the, like you would sit there, watch some credits go. And then here starts the next one. And I, I think it would be a little bit more difficult in a theater. It really seemed more suited to me to watch at home on your TV. I think that's a really good point. And that Coen brothers even came out and they, I mean, they said as much in that studios nowadays, they're making, you know, they're making their big action movies. They're making their, uh, you know, their franchise movies and whatnot. And this was an opportunity for them to take digital cameras, which they've never shot before. And it's got, it's got effect shots in it. Like, it's not like this movie didn't cost any money. Sure. Like the, and they really experimented with the cinematography and the days, uh, the times of day in which they were shooting. They shot this movie all over the place. They shot it in Colorado. They shot it in New Mexico. They shot it in Nebraska. And then the, Stagecoach uh, scene was shot completely on soundstage. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and so, like, that's a really interesting point. But, like, going back to, you know, their their last small movie, which was, I think, A Serious Man. Like, yeah, sure, it made $30 million, but $30 million ain't shit anymore, you know? No. And, and again, I can't say that they went into this to make money, you know? But... They really saw Netflix as an opportunity for them to basically have a certain level of freedom, you know? And I think that that's interesting because you right now you're seeing a split between directors. You're seeing guys like Christopher Nolan. You're guys seeing guys like Spielberg and whatever who are rejecting the notion of Netflix as a as – a, as a medium for film. And then you see other guys like all the guys that we listed who are looking at it as a, as an opportunity to make their smaller films, their weirder films because Netflix is willing to pony up. Well, and here's the thing that I think you're noticing too, is you're seeing what's going on. Netflix, Netflix, Netflix is in this rush to get content, right? Because everybody's starting to get their own streaming sites. So they know they're either going to have to pay through the nose for some of these content, some of this content, um, or they're just going to lose it altogether. A la Disney. Um, So you have to get content up there. So they're motivated to get people to put stuff together for their site. So it's no longer about the box office as much as getting content. That's going to get those views. Like we saw with bird box um, with the crazy amount of views it had in the first week that it had. But I think you're also seeing that directors are able to do passion projects that traditional studios maybe wouldn't have financed in previously. Alfonso Cuaron, Roma was a passion project for Absolutely. him. It wasn't something that a big studio was eager to go and pick up and, and release. Um, this very much comes off as something the Coen brothers just really wanted to do. Right. It wasn't like they were worried about the commercial success or anything like that. It seemed like something they just really wanted to do. And they had written, I think, gosh, I read it somewhere. I don't remember where, but it says that the Coens, you know, the Coens have been making movies for a long time and that essentially they pieced together these stories over the last two, two and a half decades. And they finally got Netflix. To, uh, there was rumors that this was going to be a series and that each section was going to be its own episode, ultimately and turned into an anthology film. Um, so, yeah, so it's super interesting. But you even look at, I mean, Scorsese, he's been trying to do something like The Irishman for a while. Right, but who's going to give him $150 million to make this this gangster epic movie? 
exactly. I, I mean, even with even you, you look at uh, The Departed. Mm-hmm. Sure, The Departed did good and made money, but those movies aren't. That's yeah, a bad. Tough, tough that's to get a those bad bet these days. That's yeah. a bad bet for a studio. Yep. You know. So and and, I mean, that kind of leads into the commercial success, which is. Who, who knows? You know, there's no way to judge, especially, you know, Netflix doesn't release its numbers, right? And for its last two films, for Roma and Bird Box, they released their numbers, right? They said, I think they said something around 20 to 25 million people watched Roma in its first week, and Bird Box was seen by 45 million. So let's cut those in half. Let's say that Ballad of Buster Scruggs was seen by 10 million, right? If it was seen by 10 million subscribers and we decide that, you know, each subscriber is a $10 movie ticket. That's $100 million. Sure. You know, technically. Who knows if that math is correct, but a lot of people saw this movie a lot more than would have seen it had it gotten some type of limited theatrical run. Sure. So so that's really cool. And that's, uh, number one, it makes that section really easy to do, you know, talking about commercial success. But on the, uh, you know, on, on the other hand, it makes it, it's an interesting conversation to judge something that has the box office success of something like, let's say, First Man, mm-hmm. which did not make $50 million domestically, right? Versus something like this. And then it's a question of money and viewership and what's more important to the to the artistic, you know, people behind the film. It's it's a fascinating conversation, much, much longer of a conversation that we'll have on here. But I think the one thing that we really haven't talked about, we've really kind of just uh, eased over it a little bit here is the look and the feel of the film. We've talked a little bit about the feel in that, as I said before, this is, I think, the most Cohen-y, Cohen brother movie that I think has ever made. I think that it has, I mean, literally, there's a scene in Buster Scruggs, two scenes in the first one in Buster Scruggs where Buster literally kicks a poker table up and it knocks a man's hand up so that it shoots that man in the head himself several times like that's some ridiculous looney tune level shit and also has an angel with wings and a harp fly out of a dead body like it is it is musical looney tunes happening there right and then the other you know you take meal ticket for example (laughs) and that has an armless legless man staring at Liam Neeson watching him throw a rock over the bridge testing the waters because he's gonna throw him in the bridge so I love that that it balances out, you know, those those feelings and whatever. But the one the one big thing that we really haven't talked about is just this movie is flat out gorgeous. It is. Um from from everything that you said, I mean it really plays with light. It plays with color. All Gold Canyon is is borderline gorgeous and it's done on purpose obviously. It's meant to be gorgeous, but they really play uh with their with their digital, you know, tools and cameras and toys. I'm in a really creative way here and, and you know, well, and, and there it's, we talked about how everything sort of seemed to be shot in the evening. Um, but they specifically, it was in reading about it. They specifically aimed to do a lot of the shooting at the quote unquote golden hour, which is either sunrise or sunset. Okay. Um, and so they felt like that was a way to kind of experiment with this being their first digital, um, shoot, shoot or, yeah. or or film and so i thought that was interesting and i think that's what kind of lended to a lot of them like you don't remember other than with meal or um 
Gold Canyon. Mm-hmm. You don't really remember. I don't really remember much daytime shots um, in the last four of them. The first, no. the first two were all done in the day. Right. The ones they shot in New Mexico, which is uh, um, the James Franco one and, and Ballad Bus Scruggs. Yeah. So it was interesting though, just to see kind of how each of them had very um, unique looks and feels, and they really captured kind of. The, the thing that I walked away from is they captured kind of the Western by doing it, but doing it in their own way. Like they all sure. felt like Western stories that we've seen before, but they were presented in a different way, both from the look and feel of it, as well as um, the way they told the story. Yeah, it's I mean, ultimately, it's a it's a really great looking film. And it's it's a, it's that's a double edged sword, because on one hand, like you get the distribution of Netflix and the ability to, to have this movie be seen by more people than than usual. On the other hand, this movie would look amazing on a on a big screen, you mm-hmm. know, so that's the trade off that's going to be for the next God. I don't know. It, 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 depending on how much Netflix changes, that's going to be the ongoing conversation for filmmaking for the next 10 years i think and that'll be really interesting so let's wrap this up let's talk about predictions you know what awards could this movie be up for coming into oscar season now david this this one obviously hasn't gotten the you know the recognition per se um that your no more cohen brothers movies getting you know they it's getting like a hail caesar level of recognition which is super funny because the cohen brothers are either like Firing on all cylinders nominated for 10 Academy Awards, Coen Brothers, or they're not, you know? Um, and that's not to say that all their movies aren't great. It's just that some, some get recognized and some don't. And this one's got a couple of things out. Like it won Best Screenplay at the Venice Film Festival. It's nominated for Stunt Ensemble for the Screen Actors Guild. It's it's really well-reviewed. Everybody's talking about it. But is that going to translate to the Academy Awards? And I don't think there's going to be a lot. I think that there is some potential here. Um I do think it's a it's a it's a dark horse outside contender for best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if by proxy it's a dark horse outside shot for best picture, then it has to be an outside shot for best director. Although that is much less likely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's definitely, definitely in consideration for cinematography, production design, original screenplay, and then maybe costumes. But I have it. I have it at those. What about you? Those were pretty much in line. The only other one that I thought maybe it would have a outside shot would be for score, only because it did get a little bit of recognition. Um, That's a good point. Score and song. I mean, does it have? I mean, it's I don't think got... it, I don't think it has a specific. I mean, it has some songs in it, but I don't think it has like a specific standout song. No, it'd have to be something from the first. Yeah, but I think the, I mean, the score was recognized by Hollywood Music and Media Awards. Okay. Um, Not that that's a big decider of what gets nominated, but I don't think there's been a ton of movies that have standout scores thus far in what we've watched. Um, There are some some really good ones this year. I'm not saying there aren't those out there, but it's not a year where you had a lot of films that just stand out from a score standpoint. We have a couple of films that almost have zero score altogether. (laughs) So it'll be interesting. Again, I I think that would be another one I'd classify as a long shot. Sure. But, I mean, at least would be potentially in the conversation. So what should we put the over-under at? Because we've we've talked about – Picture, director, cinematography, production design, costume. 
I, screenplay score and song. That is eight. I think I'd put the over under at three. Okay. All right. I was gonna say four. So let's. So okay. So then, if we if the over under is at three, do you take the over or the under? I'm gonna take the under. You're gonna take the under. All right. I'll fucking take the over. Right. <laughs> it feels like what we've been doing lately. Um, is I uh, you'll take the under. Oh, we'll put the over under at three. And you're taking the under, I'm taking the over. I love it. Um, well, that I mean, again, everybody's got the opportunity to see the, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix right now. I, I highly recommend that you do it. Uh, I mean, if you're a Netflix subscriber, why not? You know, why why wouldn't you? Um, but before we go, obviously, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to regular episodes of this podcast for free by hitting that subscribe button or following wherever you're listening from. With our Oscar primers, they might not be free for much longer. This is probably the last year but that we'll be doing the first and only year for that matter, that we'll be doing the Oscar primer episodes for free. So we really appreciate you just taking a few seconds Whatever you're doing, unless you're driving, I don't want you to, like, operating machinery. I don't want you to do it now. But if you have a second, just hit subscribe. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Share the popcorn diet with any of your good movie buddies. But the reason that we're not going to be having Oscar Primer episodes for free in our regular feed next year is because we have launched our Patreon. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash thepopcorndiet and consider becoming a patron of the podcast because not only is that going to help us improve the popcorn diet in all ways, but it's also going to give you access to exclusive patron only episodes like our franchise refills, like our next year's Oscar primers. It also give you an opportunity to, um, you know, take part in conversations, maybe get some merch, who knows? Um, but if, if not, you know, we also don't want to forget do us a favor, follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, at The Popcorn Diet. And then last but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, all of our articles, reviews, Oscar predictions on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. But for the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn, I am your very best good movie buddy, Brooke Williamson, and we'll see you next time with another frontrunner Oscar contender, on the Popcorn Diet's Oscar Primer 2019 mini-episodes. Adios.